1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My
0: name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part three of our talk about mirrors. Uh, If you haven't listened to the first two parts, you should probably go back and check those out first. But, Rob, to get us started today, I wanted to revisit one of your favorite topics, uh, our our failures of intuition and understanding how mirrors work. Uh, So we, we talked in previous parts about... Uh, uh, your point about the Rokeby Venus, you know, how, Mm -hmm. uh, there's that painting of, of Venus looking in the mirror and we see her face and we assume she's looking at herself. But since we see her looking at us, she actually couldn't be looking at herself. She's looking at us, right? As you know, and as you uh, love to point out, uh, our misunderstandings about the physics of mirrors don't stop there. And so uh, so I actually came across one recently that I really enjoyed. Rachel and I were, were doing this experiment earlier today. So so you at home can play along. A um, couple of questions. Imagine yourself standing in front of a bathroom mirror and looking at your own reflection. You're looking at your head. You're regarding this glorious orb of bone and meat. Maybe it has got some hair on it. And the question is, How big is your reflection of your head on the mirror, if you were to measure it? Is it smaller than your actual head, bigger than your actual head, or the same
1: size? Yeah, this is a great question, because what are you going to do? Are you going to move in closer and measure it?
0: Well, you could measure – if your normal bathroom mirror size, you could measure it without uh, stepping forward. You can just reach out and mark the places, you know, touch the mirror mm-hmm. where your chin is and where the top of your head is. Uh, but before you do that, just just guess before you actually measure it. The second thing is, uh, after you do that, imagine walking backwards away from a mirror. So you take a few steps back. What is going to happen to the size of your head in your reflection? Is it going to get larger? Is it going to stay the same size? Or will it get smaller? Now, my intuitions about this were apparently exactly the same as most people's intuitions about these, uh, the answers to these questions, which are both wrong. Uh, my intuition was well, I think my head in my reflection is going to be the same size as my real head. And I think as I walk backward, the size of that head in my reflection is going to be smaller. And in fact, both of these are wrong, as intuitive as they feel. If you actually reach out and measure it, your reflection of your head is half the size of your real head. And as you walk backwards away from the mirror, from your perspective, your reflected head will stay exactly the same size, no matter how far you get away. Hmm. Very odd. It seems totally counterintuitive until you start thinking about what's actually happening with a mirror? If you imagine a mirror as a sort of window into the mirror world, it's a little bit easier to think about because if you're looking at your reflected self as a person in uh, you know in that other mirror world, your reflection is always at exactly the halfway point between yourself and that reflected version of yourself. So in fact, given the vantage point of your eyes, your uh, reflected head is always going to appear to be half the size of your real head from wherever you are. And as you move backwards in a mirror, if someone were standing in the same place and looking at your reflection as you move backwards, it would appear to get smaller. But since your eyes are moving back with you, as you retreat from a mirror, your reflection actually never gets smaller. It stays Exactly the same.
1: Wow. Yeah. That's that's. Uh, it's really mind blowing when you think about it. For sure. Um, again, these just strange objects in our uh, in our lives. But it's almost when we're talking about the reflected world, the specular world. It's not even that. That itself is not the object. That is this uh, this this unreality. This uh, this inverse kingdom uh, that we seem to glimpse through the glass.
0: You know, we've talked a bit in uh, previous parts here about the the possible effects on our, our self-image and self-consciousness that could be created by different types of mirrors. Like if you have a culture where most mirrors are slightly convex and, you know, convex mirrors lead to uh, particular kinds of distortions, widening of the field or, uh, around the head and sort of uh, depending on where you hold it and how far away sort of pronouncement of certain features – uh, you you wonder if slightly convex mirrors give way to a culture with a slightly convex self image, and uh, but but it also makes me wonder, like, what are the self image properties that cause us to believe that our face in the mirror is the same size as our real face when actually it's half the size? It, it's almost kind of comical to think about you like looking at this little tiny thing, this like a few inches, uh, and thinking that it's exactly the same as your as your big old head in Meat Space.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it falls in line with some of the other uh, ideas we've discussed here, including, you know, the idea that that is what I look like uh, and that it is not a, a flipped version of my face. Uh, you know, that, that effect that we, we sometimes get when we see a photograph of ourselves, and it does not look like our mirror reflection, and therefore we're a little turned off by it because, um, you know, our right side of our face is on the left side, that sort of thing. Yeah. and And, of course, it also goes without saying that— the mirror is always staring back at us, you know that um, that 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 can't be avoided as well.
0: So in the last episode, we talked about the emergence of metal mirrors in the ancient world with uh, copper and copper alloy uh, looking glasses in Egypt and Mesopotamia from around the third millennium BCE on. So these would be highly polished pieces of metal people would use to uh, would use to look at their reflections for mundane cosmetic purposes, but also for, say, religious symbolism. Maybe in Egypt, you might put a polished piece of metal, a metal mirror on the top of a staff, and it might symbolize something about the sun. You know, Egypt has a very uh, solar-oriented pantheon. But uh, over time, the mirror technology would expand to include all kinds of metals first, so not just a Later forms of copper alloys, meaning especially bronze, you know, higher qualities of bronze, but also things like gold and silver. And so, in say ancient Rome, you can find various types of silver mirrors and things like that. So, uh, metal technology and different types of metals uh, become more available, and uh, and uh, and so mirrors based on those metals also proliferate. And one thing I was thinking about, uh, th- this is noted in that paper by Jay Enoch that I referenced in the past couple of episodes, uh, is that. You know, sometimes when we talk about inventions, there are these technical developments that stay relatively isolated in one place for a long time. Maybe you get some little, like, uh, curio exported to some other culture and it gets written about. But then there are the other ones that really just proliferate throughout the globe, whether by trade and contact or just by parallel invention. And the mirror is definitely one of these technologies that proliferates. Eventually, you find it everywhere. Enoch writes, quote, by approximately 2000 BC, there existed dispersed utilization of mirrors in virtually every major region of the world with settled societies. This includes Central and South America. After that time, mirror distribution and quality increased rapidly. So, but by a certain point deep into the ancient world, mirrors are everywhere, partially as a product of of parallel invention and partially through trade and contact and one place where it seems to be that mirrors tend to take on a lot of uh religious and cultural significance is in China.
1: Yeah, I was I was reading about this and it was it was really fascinating. Um you know, like you were saying mirror technology spreads but then also uh, technology metaphors spread as well, and the use of uh, of our ideas concerning mirrors. So that's that was one of the the things I was really looking at when I was uh, researching for this episode, and so it, it led me to a wonderful um, article about Chinese mirrors and um, and. Um, and, and particularly how different uh, ancient philosophers looked at them and used mirror or reflection metaphors. And it was uh, it was titled "Mirrors, Minds, and Metaphors," published in Philosophy East and West, two thousand eight, by Aaron M. Klein. And uh this particular paper was largely looking at a couple of different Chinese philosophers from the fourth and uh, third century b c e and um uh, and and dealing with like how they dealt with the idea of mirrors and reflections um but uh, but I want to first drive home that, yeah, you have metal, metal mirrors that were popping up in China, uh, certainly as as early as the second millennium BCE. And if you look at some of the examples of of bronze mirrors from ancient China, uh, particularly I was looking at some images of, of some mirrors discovered in a 2,000-year-old treasure trove uh, that was uh, turned up in recent years. They're quite interesting. You'll typically see one side of them photographed, uh, because they had two different sides. One side, they're going to be more or less flat, generally circular, though I think I've seen some that had a slightly different shape. Uh, so flat, circular, um, one side is going to be uh, featureless and reflective, but the other side is going to be uh, often just ornately decorated. So it, it yeah. can really be a little off-putting when you see a picture and, and it's described as a mirror and you're trying to figure out where you're supposed to look for the reflection. This is so funny. I, I was actually looking at a bunch of uh, mirrors in the Met
0: Museum collection, just uh, mm-hmm. on their website, uh, and I kept noticing this. I would look at it, and I'd be like, "What? That's not a mirror." But then I realized they're showing me the back of the mirror. I think because the back has all the interesting decorations and everything on it. And this was true of uh, so some ancient Roman mirrors. I was looking at some Iranian mirrors, uh, mm-hmm. some uh, and some ancient Chinese mirrors, where in in all cases, all of the the beautiful decorations, the inlays, and. Writing or script or imagery on them—that was all on the back side, and it always looks like, yeah. How does anybody see the reflection in this? Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, you're look at the other side. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but certainly this would be the side with the the most most of the eye-catching decoration. This would be the side yeah. that had birds or dragons or depictions of deities, or and sometimes uh, uh, good luck wishes were also inscribed there. Mm-hmm. Now, the two different philosophers that uh, That Klein was looking at here were Taoist philosopher Zhang Ji and Confucian philosopher Shunju. They each had their own separate um, worldviews, but they seemed to come together on the idea of of how we might view the Xin, uh, which Klein translates as heart mind, but I think we can also translate it as um, as intention or center or core, but I think heart mind. Is, a, is It seems to be a pretty strong translation, you know, this sort of center of being and contemplation. Uh, but both of these philosophers tended to look at ways in which this heart-mind might best resemble um, a mirror, that it might be like a reflecting pool.
0: Oh, yeah. Th- this seems to be something that, that turns up uh, in a lot of thought about mirrors throughout the world is that the mirror is often seen as a, a way to see one's true self, maybe to see the part of you that is integral.
1: Yeah. So, so Zhang Zhi wrote that, uh, that a sage's heart mind should quote, in stillness is the mirror of heaven and earth, the glass of the 10,000 things. And, um, and uh, I'll, I'll break down what, what all of this means in just a second. But, um, uh, But Xinji, on the other hand, uh, wrote that the the heart-mind must be like a mirror in order to fully contemplate the way. So the use of the mirror metaphor here seems to largely revolve around, of course, the reflective qualities of water— and each each of these different philosophers kind of uses a, a different version of that. I think with uh, uh, in the Taoist sense, you see more of this um, use of uh, of a natural body like the ocean or a lake or a pond or something. Uh, while the Confucian model that is employed here has uh, more of a uh, more of a, like a, a man made reflective pool, like a basin of water that you might have inside of a house or a, some sort of a domicile in order to view your reflection. Mm-hmm. Something you might use for self care, that sort of thing. Sure. So the idea here is that the surface of the water must be still in order to more perfectly reflect a viewer's face, or in the case of something in a more natural model, the brilliance of the sky and the mountains. Now, uh, Klein goes on to discuss the history and understanding of mirrors in Chinese culture, and I found this this really interesting. So one of the things that they point out is that while in modern times we tend to think of mirrors as passive uh, to the ancient Chinese, mirrors, especially metal mirrors, especially like those bronze mirrors we were discussing, they were seen as quote active, responsive objects. Mm. So they're they're things that respond to our world. Um, an understanding that is that um, you know, was also linked to the observation that mirrors had the ability to gather and produce.
0: Oh, this is very interesting because it reminds me of the the alternate and you could argue physically incorrect model of the eye, which, uh, you know, it was common to believe in the ancient world that the eye was not just a passive receptor of light, but actually sent something out that retrieved the image and brought it back. Uh, and I guess, you, you know, you could argue that the eye is not, in fact, totally passive because the eye moves, it focuses, mm-hmm. it, it increases or decreases the aperture that allows light in. Um, but but it, it is at least um, only receiving light. But it, it was natural for people to think throughout history that the eye was going out and getting images. It was sending something. It was like beaming out the power of sight.
1: Yeah, and in the for the ancient Chinese this apparently was also uh, compounded by observations of what you could do with a mirror. So on one hand, you could take a mirror, you could focus sunlight and you could produce fire. And it was also known that a mirror left in the moonlight would gather condensation. So, uh mm-hmm. this is interesting because we're talking about the generation of fire or the collection of water. Uh, And water and fire are the elemental essence of yin and yang, the dual energies of the cosmos. Wow. Quote, uh, this is from Klein, the fact that mirrors appeared to draw these substances from the sun and moon reinforced the cosmological power that was already associated with them. Well, you know, this makes me think of yet another way that that it
0: it could be natural to assume that a mirror has a gathering and production power, which is that by making a mirror, for example, concave, you can give it magnifying power. And in Mm -hmm. a way, it's hard not to see a a lens or a mirror that has magnifying power as in some way going out and gathering, because what it is quite literally doing is taking something that is invisible to the naked eye and making it visible.
1: You know, um, not not to jump around too much here, but this reminds me of something I read in um, Geraldine Pinch's book on Egyptian mythology uh, mm-hmm. concerning the eye of Ra. Uh, she writes, the ancient Egyptian word for eye, uh, irt, sounded like a word for doing or acting. Uh, this may be why the eyes of deities are associated with divine power as its most uh, interventional. Uh, so I, I keep coming back to that as well. That's kind of been in the background as we've been discussing the you know the idea of like what is what is a mirror doing, and mm-hmm. is it passive or is it active? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it depends on your definition of passive or
0: active there, because obviously, again, like a concave mirror that produces, say, a telescope image. You know, m- mm-hmm. most of our most powerful telescopes today are not based on uh, are on transparent refractive lenses, but they're based on mirrors. The Hubble telescope has a gigantic mirror in it. And though I think it is meant with a slightly different connotation, what even astronomers talk about these mirrors, quote, gathering light. Uh, what mm. they mean is, you know, they are taking an amount of information that is uh, that is too diffuse for our eyes to make any sense of, but then turning it into an image that is recognizable to us.
1: Yeah, yeah. I guess one of the things that, that, I, that I find super interesting about all this is that if you do see the mirror as, as more active as opposed to passive. I feel like perhaps you're more inclined to engage in metaphors for the self based on that device, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, for instance, we've talked about the idea of thinking about your brain as a, and your visual system as being like a security camera. Like a security camera is, um, you know, it, to a certain extent is acting passively, but it is acting, you know, it is, it is, it is doing something. And if it is doing something in the world, then perhaps we're more, more inclined to compare ourselves to it or compare some aspect of our, of our physiology to it. Um, yeah. And so, likewise, we see that uh, well, reflected in uh, the <laughs> Chinese view here. Um, Zhang Zhi writes, perfect persons use their heart mind like mirrors, going after nothing, welcoming nothing, responding, but not storing. Therefore, they can win out over things and not hurt themselves. So again, the idea is that a mirror is not passive, it's active, but it's responsive. It does not incite. Uh, anything. Uh, And it also does not store the images that it responds with. It lets them go. And this, of course, brings me back to this, you know, this loose metaphor that we often employ of the video camera or Mm -hmm. the camera itself as a technological metaphor for how we perceive the world and think about it and remember things. Um, You know, the more I wonder if, if ultimately that's like more of a harmful metaphor to engage in when we think about how we engage in the world. Maybe we should think of ourselves more as a mirror. Well, I mean, we know that the reality is in fact somewhere in
0: between. Like, I agree mm-hmm. that it's totally a harmful metaphor to think of, say, your memory of your vision of events as like a video camera because a video camera is. You know, with some constraints, you could think of it as objective in a way that your memory just is not. Though, then again, your memory is real. Like, it is storing something that is based on events you actually witnessed. It's just not objective in the way that a video recording is.
1: Yeah. Uh, now, another interesting uh, bit here is that Zhang also writes of mirrors illuminating. And Klein writes that mirrors in early China were thought to illuminate and reveal objects as well. So that's another spin on the uh, you know, the, the active aspect of the mirror.
0: Now, one of the quotes you read earlier from Zhang Zhi uh, had something in it that I didn't understand. It was the, the quote about "in stillness is the mirror of heaven and earth, the glass of the ten thousand things uh, or the ten thousands things." Well, wh- what are the ten thousand or ten thousands things?
1: So, uh, it's possible I'm I'm missing some like more esoteric understanding of this but based on, on reading Klein's article my understanding is that it's the idea like these are the things reflected in the mirror all the things of the world mm-hmm. and and what's crucial here is that the more the heart mind is like a mirror the more one sense of self fades away. The more I am a mirror the more I am just a reflection of the 10,000 things in the world as opposed to myself. You know, um, yeah. which which I, I find rather beautiful. It really flows into this idea of you know of 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 losing oneself in the now, of losing oneself in the sort of you know unlanguaged contemplation of one's immediate surroundings. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh yeah, that sense of by becoming the mirror, you become the world. Yeah. Uh, the, that's the the sins of oneness sought after by so many different uh, religious traditions and types of mysticism.
1: Now, Shinjo uh, was not a, a Taoist, again, but was, was a, a Confucian. Uh, different views of the world, but again, they were mostly aligned in this idea of the mirror-like aspects of the heart-mind. Um, the idea that perfectly still waters allow one to see details of one's reflection in the water, but uh, the slightest breeze... Uh, he writes, "...can both disturb the surface and stir the silt that has sunk to the bottom." Uh, Tilting the pan, likewise, can make the water and reflection murky. Uh, So uh, Klein points out that, yeah, the the pan of water metaphor here is more in line with self-cultivation practices than, you know, the natural world. Um, And I I guess that I I kind of took it to mean this is largely just sort of creative choices based, uh, uh, you know, based in the writings of the individual philosophers and not necessarily something that is like Taoism versus uh, Confucianism. But I could be wrong on that. Hmm and of course they're not alone in in of course employing mirror metaphors as we'll discuss a little bit more mirror metaphors it's like spread like wildfire uh, through um, through our language and through our philosophies and our literature um Klein also points out that Western thinkers, including 19th century Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard and the, the 20th, 21st century American philosopher Richard Rorty, uh, they, they all also employed similar metaphors uh, to mm-hmm. those of these ancient Chinese thinkers. And if you want to read more about how they compare to each other, uh, I highly recommend looking up that Klein article. I believe I was able to pull it up on uh, JSTOR um, as you know, just free access if you're logged in.
0: But it's, it's funny that as much as people are trying to sort of uh, come up with metaphors to live by and, uh, and imagery that allows them to shape their own behavior on the basis of thinking about a mirror, it seems pretty clear there, there's some evidence that a literal physical mirror can also have effects on your behavior.
1: Yeah, this idea of forced self-awareness, um, which – it's just just the, the, the phrase, forced self-awareness, it does make me think of all the places you one might encounter mirrors where mm. one does not want to encounter mirrors. Because uh, you know, <laughs> clearly, you want a mirror when you go to a restroom. You, that, that is the established place that you want to check in on your appearance. Uh, But there are other places where I find I personally would rather go mirrorless. Uh, One example, I guess, would be like a waiting room. If I'm just waiting around, I don't want to encounter mirrors because mirrors not only can give you a self-awareness you're not comfortable with, they can lead, I don't know if you've encountered this, Joe, to this weird situation where you might find yourself staring at other people in ways that you might not normally stare at them because you're doing it through the mirror. Hmm. You know, this is funny.
0: Uh, I almost brought this up in our queuing episode uh, because there is a famous anecdote from the history of uh, queue design where uh, I don't remember all the details now, but I think it was like people waiting for an elevator in a very busy building Um, They were unhappy with their wait times. And the person who was designing the building said, Hey, I I think we can solve this problem, not by speeding up the wait times, but just by putting a big mirror in the room where everybody's waiting. And that will solve the problem of boredom because people (laughs) will be very interested in looking at their own reflections while they wait for the elevator. And allegedly, according to this sort of uh, this tale about, about queuing, uh, this did solve the problem because people are, you know, now they're obsessed looking at themselves in the mirror. They're no longer bored. The wait just breezes by and they're no longer complaining. Uh, I think I ended up not talking about that because I couldn't verify that the story was actually true. It's one of those possibly apocryphal tales, but, uh, mm. but this is sort of the opposite of what you're saying here that, you know, the, the people behind this story at least are like, Hey, people are going to love to look at themselves in a mirror in a waiting room.
1: <laughs> well, I, and I would say the other area where I, Tend to not want to encounter mirrors um, would be an exercise environment, particularly a yoga environment mm. because on one hand you do encounter mirrors a lot of times sometimes a whole wall of mirrors in a yoga studio and of course that that sort of thing can be very helpful if you're wanting to see what you look like in a pose like how straight is my arm well, a mirror allows you to find out but on the other hand, for me and I think for a lot of people like one of the reasons you do you engage in yoga is to sort of become the mirror. You know, you, you don't want to, you know, you want to be in your body. You want to think about the poses that you're doing, but you don't want to necessarily engage with this kind of egoic self by looking at your appearance, uh, because that kind of b- can bring you back around into the very sort of thinking you're trying to overcome.
0: Yeah. Ironically, looking in a mirror seems like one of the worst possible things to do if you're trying to become the mirror in the Taoist sense.
1: Yeah, but again, with yoga, it's kind of a mixed. It, it, you can see it both ways because yes, it can be very helpful in a physical sense, but maybe not so much in a mental sense. I don't know. You could also make an argument that it's something that it would help you, I guess, overcome uh, that kind of thinking as well. If you're, you know, forced to uh, to be in the presence of your own reflection, but not obsess about it, I guess.
0: But coming back to that idea of forced self awareness in psychology, there are a ton of psychological studies. Uh, that have just tried to see if people's behavior changes when there's a big mirror in the room with them, if when they can see their own reflection. And, you know, y- you can think for pretty understandable reasons that this might be the case. It's a reasonable thing to test out because, for example, uh, people tend to behave differently when they're being watched as opposed to when mm-hmm. they're not being watched. So you might assume people would behave differently when they can see themselves,
1: yeah, yeah. So one of these studies uh, that I was looking at was uh, in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology back in 1998, I believe, by McCray, Bodenhausen, and Milne. And they found that people in a room with a mirror were comparatively less likely to judge others based on social stereotypes, uh, stereotypes concerning, for example, sex, uh, race, or religion.
0: Okay, so the idea there might be, you know, if this finding holds up, you might interpret it to mean that People who can see their own reflection are sort of more self-conscious about the, the, more, the ethics of their own behavior and are less likely to do something that they might be ashamed about just because the, you know, the mirror reflection creates a kind of self-consciousness.
1: Yeah, I think the idea would be you know, the difference between like setting there, having stereotypical thoughts, mm-hmm. and then setting there, seeing yourself, and on some level going, hey, there I am having stereotypical thoughts.
0: Right. It it, it invites you to sort of judge yourself and correct yourself. Yeah. So there's a funny wrinkle uh, that I was reading about in a New York Times article from 2008 by Natalie Angier that mentions the same study by McRae et al. Uh, But so it's in the context of Angier's writing about a number of studies along these lines that sort of uh, forced self-awareness by way of a mirror can cause people to behave differently and often in positive ways. Uh, so, So Angier points out, Research that has found subjects in a room with a mirror are more likely to, quote, work harder, be more helpful, and to be less inclined to cheat compared with control groups performing the same exercises in non-mirrored settings. Uh, but the funny detail about the McRae et al. finding was, again, yes, that uh, that people in a room with a mirror and in, in the presence of a mirror seem to be less likely to rely on stereotypes. And they found this was true about negative stereotypes uh, about things like sex, race, and religion— but not for all types of stereotypes. So to quote from the article, when it comes to socially acceptable forms of stereotyping, said Dr. Bodenhausen, like branding all politicians liars or all lawyers crooks, the presence of a mirror may end up augmenting rather than curbing the willingness to pigeonhole.
1: Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I
0: thought that was funny because maybe the idea there is that when people say something like, oh, all politicians are liars or all lawyers are crooks, that is something that people maybe are less likely to feel ashamed about doing and more likely to feel self-righteous about doing so it actually makes you more likely to do that kind of thing
1: oh it's like look at me sitting there dropping truth bombs in my head about the the nature of politics that sort of thing yeah
0: (laughs) so that's funny does a mirror make you more Hmm. self-righteous this is just a little anecdote but i wonder
1: well i mean that would fall right in line with the um uh you know w- with the with the idea of the ego being bound up in the reflection and uh you know f- reflective mm-hmm. contemplation of self yeah. um, and and even the myth the myth of narcissus uh, becoming you know, just entranced by his own reflection. There's another thing I want
0: to talk about, Uh, another one of the ways that mirrors have played a major role in scientific research, and this is the so-called mirror self-recognition test. And Mm -hmm. this has come up on the show a couple of times before, uh, but I just thought it would be interesting to revisit briefly. So. This is sometimes presented as a test to see if animals possess consciousness like we have, you know, self-conscious awareness. And though I don't have any reason to doubt that at least some types of animals have something analogous to human consciousness, we don't know, but it seems like a reasonable assumption to me. I'm not convinced that consciousness is really what these studies demonstrate, but they do demonstrate something interesting. Maybe it's better to call the mirror self-recognition test a test for self-awareness or something like that. So the setup is pretty simple. You take an animal and you put a mark somewhere on its body so that it can't see the mark naturally and it's not aware that you've put it there. So uh, an example might be that you put a yellow dot on an animal's forehead or on its throat while it's under general anesthesia. So it doesn't know that you've put it there, and it can't see it unless it looks in a mirror. And then you give that animal access to a mirror. Now, most animals don't react in a particularly notable way uh, to mirrors, except unless they're, they're reacting to their image in a mirror as if it were another animal. But some animals, especially after they've been exposed to mirrors for extended periods, uh, presumably to learn how they work, they start to respond with behaviors indicating that they may actually understand that the reflection in the mirror is an image of themselves, of their own body. So in the case of putting a yellow dot on their forehead or on their uh, their throat, they will reach up and touch themselves in the spot where the yellow dot is or try to groom themselves on that spot, which requires a different kind of consciousness. That's, you know, that an animal you could presume would not do that unless they had some kind of inkling that this image on the mirror was actually their own body.
1: Yeah, and it's, it, it, again, when we... Approach mirrors with this, uh, you know, less everyday understanding, and we try and we lean into what's actually going on. It, it is pretty remarkable because it means it would mean that that animal has, on some level, an understanding of the virtual world. It's funny that you say that because
0: uh, that same New York Times article by Angier uh, it quotes one uh, researcher. I, c- I can't remember the name, but somebody who says that in a way mirrors were the first virtual reality. And I, I like <laughs> that metaphor.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because we often like, what are we doing when we uh, we're, we're looking at ourselves in the mirror? You know, just mm. the normal stuff, like you know, getting ready to leave the house or something. We're moving around. We're causing our reflected self to move around. We are we, we are uh, uh, you know controlling our avatar in the mirror world. Yeah, it's just very responsive usually, unless you have one of those real uh, you know those uh, those cheaply made mirrors, and then you make it a little bit of lag. Time. <laughs> And then how about when you go and get your hair cut, and you get that uh, that wonderful the two mirror trick when you have oh, to look at the th- back of your head? That thing
0: just I, I'm I'm stupid. That thing just breaks my brain. I can never figure out how to make two mirrors work to look at the back of my head. I I keep moving them around, and I just can't see it.
1: How about when the barber or the hairstylist holds it behind your head? I, I guess they've got experience. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: But anyway, uh, so coming back to the, the mirror self-recognition test uh, as, as used on animals as a test for whatever this, this X factor is, consciousness or self-awareness or psychosomatic representational consciousness, whatever you would call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, one of the first big studies on this was by a researcher named Gordon G. Gallup, and it was called Chimpanzees Self-Recognition, published in the journal Science in the year 1970. And uh, I'll just read the abstract. It's very short. Quote, After prolonged exposure to their reflected images in mirrors, chimpanzees marked with red dye showed evidence of being able to recognize their own reflections. Monkeys did not appear to have this capacity. So he was comparing different species here, right? D- different species of primates. Uh, on one hand, you've got a great ape, the chimpanzee, but then you've also got a number of different monkey species. The monkeys used in the study were rhesus monkeys, uh, stump-tailed macaques, and something called cynomolgus monkeys, which I'd never heard of before, but these are also known as crab-eating
1: macaques. Cynomolgus, does that mean crab-eating, maybe? Um we, uh, weirdly enough, I believe, <laughs> I'm looking this up, I believe it actually means dog milk, uh, uh-huh. having to do with some erroneous claim that uh, that these monkeys were capable of milking female dogs.
0: Okie dokie. You know, you learn something new every day. Anyway, so coming back to the study by Gallup. So the chimpanzees who had experience with mirrors, uh, they were able to reach for the red dot on themselves when they saw it in the mirror But the monkeys did not do the same. And this would again seem to indicate that the chimpanzees had the ability to learn over time that the animal they're seeing in the mirror is themselves, while the monkeys don't usually have this capacity. Uh, and so the red dye helps provide a clear point of comparison that you can test on command between different species. But in fact, Gallup reported that you you didn't actually need the dye test to observe that chimpanzees could adapt to the presence of a mirror and understand what it was because you could observe spontaneous behaviors that were pretty interesting. So um, Gallup reported with his small group of chimpanzees that when he first introduced a mirror to their enclosure – for the first few days, the chimpanzees would react to the mirror as if another animal had been introduced to the area. So uh, Gallup called this a social stimulus reaction, and it would produce behaviors like bobbing, threatening, vocalizing. It was like there's an, there's another animal that's roughly like me in here, and I need to you know figure out what his deal
1: is. One of the things that's, that has always um, interested me about mirror tests is that among animals that, that are known to have failed the mirror test, you do see that distinction. Like, for instance, with cats, sometimes they react host- with hostility towards the reflection, mm-hmm. but other times it's just straight up indifference. And yeah. I, I witnessed this the other day. I was actually putting a rather large mirror on the wall of our house, and I had it had it uh, leaned up against the couch there. The cat came over and checked it out. And, you know, she just kind of looked in it, didn't seem that interested. And then she found the instruction booklet for the mirror and sat on it. And that was her complete interaction with this new mirror. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's like, oh, I, oh they're, like, it, it's, it seems like there's such, a, there's such a gap between those two different possible reactions, though, that this yeah. is a thing that I must attack and put in its place or that it's just nothing at all.
0: Yeah, uh, I I have always noticed. Uh, now I know sometimes dogs will react to a mirror and bark at it, but that's never been my experience in real life. Dogs mm-hmm. I've always known to be utterly—it's like they can't even see the mirror, you know, no yeah. reaction at all to their reflection. Um, and I wonder if that has to do with just you know the different sense world that a dog lives in that we've talked about many times. I mean, I I don't know this. I'm just wondering. So it, maybe. If another, if the image of another dog is not accompanied by some kind of dog smell, it doesn't even really register as a dog.
1: Yeah, that I think that that makes a lot of sense uh, because yeah. So we discussed before, dogs live in just an entirely different uh, a smell realm than uh, human beings, and uh, and likewise, uh, you know, cats are, are so based. You know, so much of their perception is based on their hearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it doesn't. If it doesn't sound like a cat, could it possibly be a cat? If it doesn't smell like another dog, then mm. what is it? Is it even real?
0: Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, uh, maybe that's something, uh, hey, if you know about good research on the subject, send, send it our way. I, I always want to know about dogs and, and their level of self-awareness.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, because they're Because because what, what are you doing when you show a mirror to an animal like right. this? You're giving them a, oftentimes, near-perfect um, visual um, version of another animal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, the dog might not care about that. The cat might not care about that. But what if you bring something in that smells like another dog? What if you oh, play yeah. the sound effect of a, a mewing kitten uh, on, a, on a good speaker in your house? I think you'll find that you'll get totally different reactions from these animals.
0: Oh, yeah. So my dog, who does not care about reflections and mirrors at all, will go absolutely nuts <laughs> if we say bring in an object from another house that a dog lives in. Mm-hmm. This unleashes a storm of sniffing and interest in in this item. (laughs) Oh, but sorry. uh, Anyway, uh, coming back to to the Gallup study. So I mentioned that when a mirror is first put into the enclosure, at least as Gallup reported in in the chimpanzees that he was working with, when the mirror first went into the enclosure, they would at first react as if it was another animal. You know, they would try to threaten it. They might um, do displays at it or make vocalizations at it. But these uh, social type reactions – decreased rapidly over the course of two or three days, and by like day four or five, they were just not doing this anymore. And the social reactions over the course of a few days tended to be replaced with behaviors that... Um, that were directed toward the self and which Gallup took as uh, evidence of understanding that the chimpanzees were interacting with representations of their own bodies. So to read from Gallup's report, quote, such self-directed responding took the form of grooming parts of the body, which would otherwise be virtually inaccessible without the mirror, picking bits of food from between the teeth while watching the mirror image Visually guided manipulation of the anal genital areas by means of the mirror, picking extraneous material from the nose by inspecting the reflected image, making faces at the mirror, blowing bubbles, and manipulating food wads with the lips by watching the reflection. In all instances of self-directed behavior, the self is the referent through the reflection, whereas in cases of social behavior, the reflection is the referent. So once they'd been exposed to a mirror for a few days, the chimpanzees would start performing all kinds of exploratory and grooming behaviors with respect to their own bodies, which is fascinating.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's very difficult to try and put ourselves in the mind of a, of a chimpanzee, mm-hmm. um, but but on a human level, like, imagine if you had had no access to mirrors and then you were given one, like it would it would really just you know open open a, a, a gateway into a new realm of self-awareness and, uh, yeah. and self-grooming.
0: Yeah, so as Gallup reported in this study at least, the chimpanzees passed the mirror self, uh, self-recognition self test and the, the monkeys did not, the rhesus monkeys and the maca- macaques did not. Uh, but since then, a number of studies have found other animals to quote pass versions of the mirror self recognition test uh, though again I want to emphasize there is debate about some of these findings and again debate about the best ways to
1: interpret them
0: so i I do find these studies really interesting but I would say interpret them with caution
1: yeah yeah it's uh, I think a lot of times just the idea of the mirror test is um, is sort of engaged with um Kind of simplistically, at least by, you know, uh, non-scientists and general public sort of thing. Uh, And yeah, you do see plenty of articles that question the the usefulness of, say, trying to get an octopus to look in the mirror. Right.
0: But with all those caveats, some of the uh, examples of animals that have uh, in some way or another been interpreted to have passed the mirror self-recognition test, uh, these would include other great apes, so Mm -hmm. uh, animals like gorillas and orangutans and I think bonobos uh, to some extent, uh, elephants- some corvids, but not others, definitely magpies, have mm-hmm. in some studies, or at least one study, been found to try to groom a spot on their body where, where a dot of dye has been placed. And also perhaps some dolphins, I think it was bottlenose dolphins, though their behaviors are harder to interpret than the behaviors of animals that can groom themselves with beaks or hands or trunk.
1: You know, I haven't read anything recently about um, dolphin cognition. I'd love to come back to dolphins and, and really go in. At great depth, but I guess one question that comes to mind is: in an underwater environment, to what extent was is a dolphin going to encounter a reflection of itself? Would you would it be able to encounter a reflection of itself at the surface of the water uh, from mm. the submerged side? I don't know. I don't know the answer hmm. because some of these other animals. It seems like you could, you know, perhaps simplistically ask the question, well, wouldn't they occasionally encounter reflections of themselves in the water? You know, wouldn't there have, wouldn't they encounter that stimuli in the natural world under the right conditions? Hmm. Yeah, maybe, I don't know. Or maybe, I
0: don't know, maybe when you go to a still pool of water and you're an orangutan or something, you, you're just thirsty and you just get in the water real fast. You don't stop and look. Who knows?
1: Yeah. I, I know it is It's particularly weird when you think about humans and their mirrors, about how we inflict them on the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we don't think about this a lot. We don't think, well, I I don't really put a lot of mirrors outside. But of course, you have traffic mirrors. And every vehicle that we put out there on the street, they have at least two mirrors on the outside of the vehicle. Uh Uh, So just the other day, I was watching a a bird. I'm almost positive it was not a Corvette. But it kept coming, landing right next to the automobile mirror, looking at itself, and then flying up. Then flying back down, and then flying up, then flying back down to the mirror, and it did this on a loop for like um, you know like two or three dozen times. Mm, I wonder if it was
0: interpreting the reflection as a as a strange bird, as another yeah. animal.
1: Yeah, perhaps so.
0: Just one last note. Uh, so, as far as I can tell, it seems that dogs do not generally pass the uh, the mirror self recognition test. But uh, I, I was reading an article on NPR from years ago. It was from like 2011, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, that was uh, talking about one researcher who was proposing an alternate, uh, an alternate version of the mirror self-recognition test for a dog that would involve smells rather than reflection, which is a little bit different because the smell would have to be like the, you know the smell of something produced by the body, like the smell of its own urine or something like that. Uh, and th- this in- raises interesting questions about like what is the boundary of the self for something like a dog is the smell of its own urine in a way itself or distinguishable as something that is produced by the body, but not coextensive with the body. Hmm. Interesting. Rob, Rob, what's that magic? I feel what's that strange sensation in the air. Is that the fairy King of a four part series coming down to bless this episode with, uh, with, with the extended life of going on into yet one
1: more part. I think it is yes, um, and and I realize at this point we're we're definitely in the hall of mirrors. Uh, it's it's you know we're so far into the topic uh, we may not be able to determine how much further we have to go and how far we have in fact come, uh, but we will be back for at least one more mirror episode. I know we have some more stuff to talk about concerning uh, well metal mirrors for starters. We haven't really. Uh, discuss them at length yet, and uh, we also have some more about uh, uh, mirrors in t- uh, as they as they are used in or invoked in technological metaphors in uh, in some other cultures around the world. So there's uh, there's a lot more to discuss, and perhaps uh, if there if you get to us in time, you might be able to ask, hey, how about this? And maybe we can even include it into the next episode. I'm not sure if the timing will work perfectly on that, but. Uh, Certainly, if you're listening to these episodes and you have thoughts about your own interactions with mirrors, your pets and their interactions with mirrors, cultural ideas concerning mirrors, all of it is on the table, write in and let us know what you're thinking. And in the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. That is where you will find our episodes. Uh, Our core episodes publish on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We have a little bit of listener mail, uh, which we do on Mondays. On Wednesdays, we do the artifact, unless it has been uh, uh, preempted by uh, an advertisement of some sort. And then on Fridays, uh, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to talk about a strange movie and